And you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm with lots of ways to get us, right? You can dial into us. You can listen at prn.fm. We're on stuff. I guess we're on iTunes and stuff like that. So anyway, our back shows of Visionaries are at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N is a nancy.com. So the show will be up in uh, in a day or so, and you can find about 80 of our back shows there. So welcome aboard, and I wasn't sure what I was going to talk about today. <laughs> I got up this morning, and I'm looking at, you know, Facebook and YouTube and uh, news feeds and stuff like that. I'm not a news junkie. I'm not interested in <laughs> uh, who won who got what Academy Award, but there's some people I follow, so I look at you know Twitter and stuff like that, and <clears throat> I'm not sure where I saw it, but there was a story from the BBC on is civilization going to collapse? Okay, so. I look at it and it you know they do that regularly <laughs> the roman the roman empire is no longer with us so it can happen and it sort of looked at why and I'm thinking um I'm just getting old and find everybody else dumb uh so right now for the past few days uh my mother died at 90 about 10 years ago and she left a memoir of growing up in Ridgewood, Queens, New York, from, uh, say, 1920 to 1932, and, you know, till the age of uh, 16. And it's a beautifully written portrait of an era, a neighborhood and an era. And, uh, you know, I'm struck by how many of their relatives live within walking distance. <laughs> Very few people had a car, so <laughs> it had to be walking distance or trolley distance. Um, she describes taking the trolley to Forest Park. <clears throat> and um, I'm thinking about... Uh, the education she had, she went to Barnard, she went to Columbia Law School, and a kind of background of insight and material with which one can approach uh, things. So I'm looking at this House Civilization Falls. It does mention Toynbee, but it doesn't mention Oswald Spengler. Well, Oswald Spengler's decline of the West, I think, and for the few people I follow. Uh, you might have heard it from John David Ebert, who I've interviewed a few times, is the first and fundamental text of our time. So first you read uh, Decline of the West, <clears throat> which describes two major ideas. Uh, one is that civilizations go through life cycles, and Spengler gives an organic analogy, you know, a a, a birth, a youth, uh, a vital um, middle age, and an old deterioration. And two is that each culture has its own inner symbolic structure. And they're all totally different one from another. And if we're going to understand our civilization, that, that's where you start. So didn't want to talk about Spengler, plenty of other things, but one more thing about Spengler, just one of the incredible insights. Interestingly, uh, he talks about uh, a non-objectivity, and he's very influenced by Friedrich Nietzsche. So the very, and it's not a well-organized book. It's very scattershot, but the opening chapter is on mathematics. 
And the reason for that is you would say, well, look, you can have different civilizations that have different attitudes about God or our origin of human beings or our relationship to nature. But one and one is two. Two and two are four. That's universal. <clears throat> so he opens up with a chapter on mathematics, in which he shows it's not universal. What the Greeks meant by one, two, three, four is very different than what um, the West means by one, two, three, four. And he goes, you know, for the Greeks, each number is a discrete thing. And for us, you might think of it like a ruler. And you've got a one-inch, two-inch, three-inch, but you got one and an eighth, you know, one and a quarter inch, one and an eighth inch, one and a sixteenth inch. And the one is no more important than the one and a quarter. Uh, the, there are an infinite number of divisions along a continuity. That's not how the Greeks thought of it. They thought of it very differently. So um, that's the opening chapter. And now we're talking about reading a book. <laughs> this book's like three inches thick, although you only have to read volume one. So you have to read an inch and a half. You know, then you got to go on and read Campbell, which is another monster, a couple of monsters. But anyway, <clears throat> so I was thinking about what kind of insight, what kind of education, <clears throat> what kind of foundational thought underlies the things that uh, we encounter. Not much. <laughs> so I'm right now, I'm about three quarters of the way through. A book, I'll talk, and when I say a book, I, who, who can read a book? I'm listening uh, to the audio book. But I'm listening to Merchants of Truth by Jill Abramson. So Jill Abramson is former chief editor of the New York Times. And it's an absolutely brilliant book. Uh, I'm going to try to get her on, although it's a mega bestseller. So, uh, you know, I might not have luck. But I'm going to promise her something to see if it works. And that is, there was a few sloppy footnotes in the book, and so that's all anybody's talking about. But the book is really important. And she follows in detail four major news outlets. The New York Times, the Washington Post, and then two online ones, BuzzFeed and Vice. And... The, it's, it, the book is written against the backdrop of the story of the dire straits in which newspapers find themselves. And uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post have each uh, maybe laid off roughly half of their news staffs as they tend to, uh, as they attempt to stem the flow of red ink. And they, um, but at least they're still alive. Maybe half of all the newspapers in the country are gone. And newspapers, uh, now, why is this a problem? Well, newspapers have always been uh, the fourth estate, right? There's the three branches of government, judicial, legislative, and executive. And newspapers are sort of thought of as... Uh, uh, the fourth branch, and it's their job to uh, keep everybody honest, to report the truth, to root out corruption. And <clears throat> there's corruption on all levels of government, including particularly local. And if nobody's reporting it, the scoundrels can get away with it. So uh, the loss of local newspapers, or when they survive, they tend to get these local newspapers are tending to get bought up by huge chains, which then uh, just uh, have prepackaged news that comes from the wire services, or the one wire service that's left, Associated Press. And they don't have the budget for the long-term in-depth investigative reports by journalists that root out these uh, stories of corruption. Well, um, so newspapers are in trouble. 
and the budgets for this kind of uh, in-depth journalism are fading away. In the meantime, attention is being uh, gathered up by these online sites. And she looks at two of them, BuzzFeed and Vice, and incredible investigative journalism on her part. And I think that's where she got in a bit of trouble, that uh, a lot of what she's reporting comes from various sources, and they're all footnoted, but, well, they are footnoted, but not necessarily all of them. She says, you know, I'll footnote one quote, and then the next quote didn't get footnoted. So anyway, she says the next edition uh, as it's a big bestseller book, there are going to be plenty of reprintings, and they're going to clean that up. So it's, let's regard that as not an issue. But <clears throat> what a story. Uh, I just don't have an appetite for junk, <laughs> I'm afraid. Uh, I, I love YouTube because there, there are some major deep thinkers like David Deutsch, who we've been fortunate to have on this show, Um who's one of the most important quantum theorists of our time and thinks about science in deep philosophical senses. Um, his most recent book, and we talked to him about when we had him on, is The Beginning of Infinity. And what he means by that is if we encounter another, <coughs> an, alien, an alien race, might it be a million times more intelligent than us? He says, no. Uh, we've already reached infinity. There's nothing we can't do. Uh, might take a while. Uh, we might have not done it yet. But there's um, a certain kind of method of investigation of reality that once you have the method, you can just keep going to infinity. And we might be, you know, at 2%. <laughs> And got a long way to go, but we've got the method. And unless we overthrow the Enlightenment, unless we overthrow free and open thinking and explorations, we can keep going. Now, he's not optimistic that we will keep going. Um, he's he's not um, he's not direly pessimistic. He just thinks you know it is risky. Uh, there have been a couple times in the history of the human race, and I think he probably has in mind Periclean Greece, when there was this openness, there was this charge into the exploration of ideas, and they got cut off. So there's no guarantee that ours will go on indefinitely. They could get cut off. I'm more pessimistic than he is because I'm a Spenglerian, and <clears throat> Spengler sees that human history is not one continuous line. You know, uh, oh, maybe there are bumps in the continuously upward-reaching graph, but most materialists today think of it as continuous. And Spengler shows how uh, each of these cultures is independent and has about a thousand-year life cycle. And ours began around 1000 A.D. So if you do the math, uh, uh, we're reaching a, a stage of atrophication in old age. But uh, And whatever comes along next, next isn't necessarily going to be open to this kind of exploration. Maybe that's a peculiarly Western notion. So anyway... Uh, Jill Abramson in Merchants of Truth looks at these other websites and where there's, what's the word, clickbait? Uh, it's just filled with stuff to get you to click, like, you know, 32 cute cats, <laughs> whatever. Uh, 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 10 things you need to know. <laughs> uh, guaranteed weight loss, you know, <laughs> whatever. And they... The BuzzFeed advice being digitally, natively digital. It's the people that built these things are not newspaper journalists who said, oh, we've got to get our stuff online. But rather, these people grew up with the web, and they think that way. 
And what they uh, were able to do is say, what works? What gets people to click? And uh, there's really vicious stuff that, you know, we're hearing about all the nasty stuff that Facebook is doing, how they manipulate us, how they're selling our data, how they say, oh, no, we only consider you a statistic as part of a large group. Oh, no, you're a statistic of one, and they know everything about you. And uh, she describes all these services that have been built up. You know, if they know four data points about you, they know more about you than your coworkers. If they know eight data points about you, they know more than your spouse. <laughs> if they know 16 data points about you, they know more about you than you do. Uh, uh, so <laughs> there are people keeping track of all this stuff. And, you know, from the from the phone calls and texts I get from my credit card company, they're also, you know, did you just buy 32 computers in Idaho? <laughs> no. Well, well, we'll investigate it and charge it back when we figure out what happened. <laughs> so, I, I, actually, I haven't looked at my charges for a while. I better, I better get home. I better look. So, anyway... Uh, so BuzzFeed can do things like try the same story with two different headlines. Which one gets more clicks? Okay, now try it with 100 different headlines and 10 different variations on the story. So you can get really sophisticated about what makes people click. And then I guess every once in a while, you know, I have to confess to those guilty pleasures, you know, like... Um, the 10 greatest classic cars. Well, I'm a classic car buff. Uh, you know, just briefly, <laughs> 10 years ago, for two years, I owned a 1955 Cadillac Eldorado convertible. Um, and the guy I bought it from said, so, and it's now, I sold it to a guy in Sweden. So my car is now the coolest car in Sweden. Boy, was that a cool car. Uh, it's not the giant tail fins. That's 59, but really beautiful classic tail fins and, um, you know, an epitome of the American automobile as, you know, as a moment in culture and and thinking of how different it is from my Honda, which is already an antique, right? <laughs> I have a 2008 Honda. So it's got, you know, a half a dozen computer chips in it. But it's not like the cars today that do the automatic braking and all that. But uh, so I'll click on something like, uh, you know, the 10 greatest classic cars. Oh, what did they, because I got my opinion. So what did they choose? And of course, you got to scroll through 10 different ads before you can click to see number nine. 10 more ads before you can click to see number eight. So that's what it's about. You know, that's clickbait. And then if you click on one of those ads, somebody makes some money. So uh, BuzzFeed and Vice originated as just means of doing that. And eventually they were making so much money uh, or they never really did make money. Uh, investors were giving them so much money. <laughs> uh, they were growing so much that they were able to get into hiring real reporters to do real investigations. And so what is the what does it mean that we live in a world where BuzzFeed and Vice and similar sites uh, have grown in importance, and the New York Times and the Washington Post and similar newspapers have declined in importance. Well, for the moment, the Washington Post was rescued, as we all know. It was bought by Jeff Bezos. Personally, it was not bought by Amazon. He used his own money. And he said, this is not a charity case. I'm not here to lose money. We're going to make this thing work. But he... Um, has brought his smarts to increasing their web traffic and uh, et cetera. And so far, uh, both are doing well. <laughs> what, rescued the, what rescued the Times and the, and the Washington Post is Donald Trump. <laughs> Everybody is so freaked out about 
<laughs> what's going on in the country today that they're checking in on the uh, you know they they I think the the paper subscriptions to the New York Times has doubled. <laughs> I've been subscribing to the New York Times since uh since uh, homeroom in the uh, in junior high. So I uh <laughs> it's not new to me, but apparently people are piling on board, <laughs> and then they're checking the. I don't, you know, I I don't know what to do with the Times website. I don't know what it is, and what the only thing I use it for is if I see a story in the paper newspaper, or my wife sees a story, you know, like a review of an opera, she wants to send it to her opera teacher. I'll find the. Uh, that story on their website and email it to my wife so she can forward it to her friends. So um, um, that's a um, that's how I use the website. But apparently, you know, it's 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 it is, and for the times to survive has to be a thing in itself. And they've got lots of website viewers, but. The advertising on the website, as they say, brings in pennies compared to the paper uh, uh, advertising dollars. And, of course, that paper advertising uh, is evaporating due to the web. So even long before Amazon, the major department stores began to disappear. And with Amazon, we're down to – I guess we're down to Macy's and Saks in New York – as major department stores, and uh, even Barney's uh, is in trouble. And uh, Lord & Taylor just closed their flagship store. They're still in malls, but I think they're going to have a little presence in their old uh, Fifth Avenue store. I don't know. I don't really follow these things. But point is, those department stores in the days when there were uh, – uh, half a dozen major ones or a dozen of them, Macy's and Gimbel's and Bonwit Teller and on and on and on, would each take maybe five pages of ads every day uh, or on the big shopping days. And and those are just gone. And <clears throat> then you would have like five pages of classified ads. Well, Craigslist, you know, and most of it's free. So uh, that evaporated classified ads in no time flat. When I was a kid, and my my interest in a, in classic cars began in high school, although in those days classic cars were 1930s cars, <laughs> 1955 Cadillacs were were across the street. We didn't have one. We had a Plymouth and a Chevy. We had a Plymouth, a Chevy, and a Ford. How do you like that? Um, <clears throat> my um, my father had he had a Ford station wagon for his for work. But anyway. Um, uh, you know, you would sort of drool over the ads, I would. And so every Sunday, the New York Times would be all the classified car ads, you know, like a 1938 Mercedes-Benz SS100 or something like that. I mean, what a cool car. Uh, those, And, you know, maybe they were $5,000 then, which was $10,000, which was a lot of money. Uh you know, twice what a Cadillac, new Cadillac would cost. But today they're a couple million, so <laughs> should have gotten one, right? Uh, should have saved up my lawn mowing <laughs> money. <laughs> Actually, I did talk to a, a friend about, do you want to go in together on one of these? Maybe we can pull it off. But anyway, um, so that's gone. Uh, that's all in um, That's all in Craigslist. So anyway, newspapers are in trouble. So this book is about that, but it's 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 what what is do what what is being done to us? How wh- wh- how how is that news put together? How is it fed to us? Am I seeing the same stuff you're seeing? Um, I've got on Twitter. Uh, I've picked. Think about I, I followed Ballpark 150 people, and. They are people like, uh, again, people I aspire to have on the show. I have had on David Deutsch, uh, uh, Stephen Wolfram, major computer scientist, uh, Ray Kurzweil, major futurist, uh, people like that. 
and some social policy thinkers like Matt Ridley, uh, books about the future, about technology, uh, Peter Diamandis of um, Singularity Institute, people like that. But despite that, all this political junk shows up in my Twitter feed, uh, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, uh, 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 this, uh, this reportedly fake um, racial incident, incident, incident in Chicago. Why, why is that showing up? Enough? Who, and we're just force-fed this stuff. And, <clears throat> this, you know, and, there, and then the fun part, is the first time it happened, it was, whoa, <laughs> what a coincidence. And, oh, that's what they're doing. You know, I went and I looked at something. I don't remember what it was. Let's just say I went, uh, I went to um, Sony and looked at a, a voice recorder. Yeah, I just looked at it. Didn't buy it. Don't need one. Your phone does it. Uh, maybe you use them if you're pro- recording professionally. <laughs> so, and the next time I go on uh, Twitter, there's this big banner ad for this Sony voice recorder. I go, what? <laughs> How'd they know? <laughs> so... <clears throat> uh, you know, I think about you think about people's bank accounts being hacked. I don't have any money. Well, why should I worry? Uh, well, <laughs> keep getting these phone calls from the bank. <laughs> Did you buy thirty-two computers in Idaho? <laughs> so you know, even me. So so when I you know so that's easy. You know that they track. You look at this product, and then you get the ad. But but that's an ad. You expect that, right? And we were told that years ago, Time Magazine had different ads for different regions. Well, of course, you're not going to get an ad for New York Macy's if you're in Chicago. Uh, And, of course, Time Magazine, yes, they're national, but they do want to try to get some local ads. Yeah, so if the the local Toyota dealer wants to advertise in Time, they want to make that possible and that that local Toyota dealer doesn't want to buy ads across the United States for all whatever it used to be, 3 million Time magazine readers, whatever it is today. Uh, and they say, no, we can, we, can, we, can, uh, we can spot just the New York region. And great, you know, so, yeah. But then the news got out, the story got out that they varied the news. They varied the content in Time magazine depending upon – not only region, but uh, demographics, like how rich you are, and which either they predict by whatever their this is the old days, right? And maybe in those old days they just went by zip code, but today they can go by. Did you ever look at a at an ad for a voice recorder and Sony on the Sony website? You know, <laughs> so. Um, so this has always been going on, but now it's fine-tuned. And so what we're being fed uh, on uh, these sites, I sometimes look at Gizmodo because I'm into gizmos, but uh, I, I have to confess, I don't even think I really, I knew what, um, I knew what, the one that had a big lawsuit about the wrestler. Uh, I knew what they were. I never looked at it. But I wasn't really sure what BuzzFeed, and I didn't know what Vice was. Uh, BuzzFeed's such a great name. Of course, you'd know about it. But uh, so I looked it up, and I've sort of been following it a little bit since reading about it in Abramson's book. But anyway, highly recommended, Merchants of Truth by Jill Abramson. And the thing about it is that um, the the way— well, there's lots about it, and we're moving from, we thought for a while, we're moving from a top-down culture to a bottom-up culture, or as um, Stevenson, what's his first name? Science fiction writer Stevenson. He wrote uh, Diamond Age, and he wrote, um, uh, what's it, uh, that really great humorous science fiction novel. But anyway, Diamond Age, 
Neil Stevenson. Thanks. Thanks to the uh, my engineer here. Uh, so, uh, highly recommend. He writes these monster books. His books on the Baroque are just, oh my God, you know, you know, like thirty hours or eighty hours. <laughs> Not that I'd read them, but you have to listen to them. So, uh, oh, Snow Crash. Snow Crash is just an utter joy. The 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 uh, the protagonist is named Hero Protagonist. That's his name. And he's a, uh, a CIA ninja pizza delivery guy. <laughs> oh. But uh, Diamond Age is about a, an engineer. It's, it's shortly in the future when we've got nanotechnology and super, super miniature supercomputers and artificial intelligence. And a, an engineer creates for his daughter a book that's an interactive supercomputer. It's going to educate her. And it gets stolen and goes to a itinerant street waif girl. And <clears throat> interestingly enough, you know, if you, if you think about what can and can't be done with AI, even in this AI future, there's certain things that the AI can't do including a certain kind of empathy. So there's live operators who sometimes when she's interacting with the book, the live operator can cut in. Um, and this book brings her up. Uh, it educates her. And um, it turns out she didn't get the book randomly. And this was a um, intended for a major revolution of from feed to seed. Feed is... The world as it is in the, the time of the book, in which everybody has one of those nanotech toaster oven size things where you on the keypad you just say T-bone steak, you know, <laughs> or um, uh, woven hat or writing pad. Um, and you go out to dinner, you come back, and it's uh, 3D printed your thing. And the feed is the mostly carbon, but <clears throat> nitrogen, hydrogen, a few other chemicals that come in that feed the machine uh, uh, to uh, to make these things. Well, and of course, the rich people have handmade paper uh, and handmade clothes, not the machine-made clothes, and write with fountain pens, you know. But, you know, and do calligraphy. Uh, but anyway, um, um, seed is when things will bubble up from each individual person uh, from uh, as opposed to coming from these centralized owners of society. Uh, interesting. The rich people, everybody's got anything they want. In the, but they're little minimal uh, apartments, and they can have, you know, uh, 3D-printed or nano-printed material things. But the rich people are the stakeholders, the people who own the stock in Apple, Google, Amazon of the day. But anyway, um, maybe that's not what's happening. You know, maybe the Internet is not making all of us um, equal as publishers. Uh, yes, people can bubble up, but um, uh, what does Jordan Peterson refer to? The Prado principle? So this is an Italian economist who shows the, the 80-80 rule, you know, that um, um, what is it? 20% of the people have 80% of the wealth um, uh, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Uh, you know, it's it's not a function of capitalist greed. It's the nature of all organizations. Uh, it's the nature of the way things work. And <clears throat> if that's the case, uh, you know, well, I've got... <laughs> 
100 YouTubes on YouTube. How many of my audience has looked at any of them? <laughs> I've, I got 150,000 views, but that's not a lot. There are people who get 150,000 for one YouTube. I have 150,000 for 100 YouTubes. Mostly about architecture, so architects from all over look at them. But anyway, so what kind of world is emerging? And if we ever get uh, Jill Abramson on the show, we can talk to her about that because that's really what the book's about. And the people who have been interviewing her have not really been um, digging down into that. So speaking of online, um, let me just dig my notes up here. Wrinkling my paperwork. Oh, something I might get to. I'm really teed off about Amazon not coming to Queens. One of uh, one of our students at Pratt for five years was the head director of the Amazon website. You know what you saw was he created and was responsible for. So t- was it twenty? 5,000 high-tech jobs, averaging 150,000, averaging 150,000 a year. That's a lot more than I make. And a bunch of politicians said, these jobs are peanuts. They're crummy jobs. We don't want them. What? Well, anyway, I'm upset about it. Um, I thought Cuomo stated it really well. Uh, I mean, talk about – he says – you know, where they're locating was created by Cuomo's father like 30 years ago as a, an, an industrial zone to invite new businesses, and not a single one moved there in 30 years. And now someone's willing to come there, and we don't want it. Well, unfortunately, I'm getting old, and I remember New York in the 70s. I mean, we have—these are very round numbers— we have 200, about 250 murders a year in New York. We had 2,500, 10 times as many in the 70s. There's been a 90% drop in murders. I remember in the 70s, you walk down the street, every, you know, every building had at least one storefront in it with a for rent sign. Now, that's starting to happen again as, uh, you know, online merchandising are threatened storefronts. But... Uh, at least, at least we got jobs in New York. I remember when half of all uh, New York's a sort of an architectural capital. Half of all the architects disappeared. It's three hundred dollars to renew your your registration as an architect, and there was so little work that half of all architects didn't bother. They went and looked at for some other job. Uh, I mean, things can get bad in New York. You know, everybody assumes the prosperity that we've had for the past 20 years is uh, the natural state of things. Well, it's not. New York has its ups and downs. And if we try hard enough, we can bring back the bad old days. Anyway, (laughs) more about Amazon another time. But now, should we be born? (laughs) So I'm looking at my, uh, actually on Facebook, one of the people that who knows what you know i'm following i have i have about almost 3000 friends on facebook and, and the reason is that for a while i tried to friend everybody i could cuz i i don't know what i'm doing but i thought this is a way to promote a book that i wrote a couple of years ago on creativity so i can you know if i post something it'll reach my friends who knows what who what, <laughs> when you post something who sees it but one of these 3,000 people is Christine Peterson, and fortunately, her stuff shows up. I don't know why, but she's an interesting person. She was married to K. Eric Drexler, the founder of nanotechnology. He wrote a book called Engines of Creations about 20, 25 years ago, introducing this idea of molecular manufacturing, making things one molecule or one atom at a time. And we're not there yet, (laughs) but think of it as um, molecular 3D printing. And uh, he still argues that it would work. It's it's a movement. But he, at the time, was married to Christine Peterson. They founded an organization, Foresight. And I attended – now, 
before that, there's a guy named John Smart, if you can believe it, and he's a futurist, and he had has an organization, Accelerating Change, and he had a series of conferences that I found out about, and I went to all of them, and they were really great, and unfortunately, he stopped doing them. But these conferences were literally as good as TED, and they cost 300 bucks. <laughs> and TED, you can't get into, and it's, I don't know, $5,000, $6,000, something like that. Uh, but anyway, I'd go to these regularly, and I'd see Christine Peterson there and um, presenting about nanotechnology. And then Foresight, uh, they, she's no longer married to, um, to uh, Drexler, but she is involved with Foresight. She was a president for many years, and they had really great conferences. And um, so I go to these conferences. One of them was just unbelievable, and they, it was people from all over the world presenting absolutely cutting-edge technology, sort of related to nanotechnology, like stretch DNA out as a thread, pull it through a hole, and this thing would read the sequence as you zip it through super fast. Or another woman was isolating a single copper atom in a substrate of nickel crystal and then being able to manipulate that atom so as you could do quantum computing with it. And, you know, maybe 50 presentations of that mind-blowing level. And unfortunately, this stuff was so cutting edge that most of it had not been published yet, and therefore they couldn't record it. So best conference I ever went to is evaporated in the wind. But anyway, that was the last one she organized. And uh, so I follow her. And the last big one she organized, I've gone to some of her stuff since. But... uh, pops up on one of her <clears throat> Facebook feeds is uh, an argument about antinatalism. What the hell is antinatalism? <clears throat> so what do we do? Of course, we go to Wikipedia. Antinatalism is a philosophical position that, sci- that assigns a negative value to birth. Antinatal- antinatalists so natal is birth, anti-against, argue that people should abstain from procreation because it is morally bad. Some also recognize the procreation of other sentient beings as morally bad. In scholarly and in literary writing, various ethical foundations have been adduced for antinatalism. Okay, so uh, we shouldn't be here. Um now, interesting. So what she what what Peterson I later figured out uh, posted was a quote from um, from Quillette. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But uh, Quillette is a online magazine that comes out of Australia. So, looking up Quillette. Quillette is an online magazine founded by Australian writer Claire Lehman. The publication has a primary focus on science, technology, news, culture, and politics. So this was an article, um, and now I've got pieces of paper stacked up here. Here we go, yeah, Quillette, uh, published in December 22, 2018 by Kenton Engel. What if you choose what if you could choose one person in your life and end their suffering? All the pain and frustration and woe intrinsic to their mortal condition would disappear. Best of all, with no financial investment, effort, or trouble on your part. All that is required from you is to abstain from an activity with no compelling justification. <laughs> that person, I guess, is your potential kid. Uh so um <clears throat> So what do we feel about this? So this article uh, sort of summarizes the growing antinatalist movement, and which I've been sensing for some time, a real uh, anti-life, anti-activity, where 
Now, if you think about it, um, and I guess we're going to wrap up here in a few minutes, but if you think about it, um, if you believe we should not cut down that redwood tree because it enriches the environment, creates a better world, um, and creates wilderness which provides relief for us, then we might say you're an environmentalist. If you believe we should not cut down that redwood tree, this is how I put it to my students, <clears throat> because it has a moral right to exist equal to or superior to yours, then you are a, uh, what shall we say, um, a radical uh, ecologist, uh, or, no, I'm sorry, a deep ecologist. And there are particularly branches of feminism that are associated with deep ecology. So deep ecology holds that we uh, should definitely tread lightly, and maybe we shouldn't even be here at all. And uh, I think definitely discussable. And uh, just to jump ahead, my position is we should uh, we should be here, but uh, tread lightly. <laughs> uh, I wrote a book called The Little Green Book, and <clears throat> a long time ago, I was. Uh, uh, in the early 1980s. You can find it online. It's long out of print. But one of the things that we look at is suppose you look at three, let's just take birth control. And let's focus on the woman at the moment since that's the only, that's an effective means. Uh, you could have a massive intervention where you uh, take hormone pills that screw up every aspect of a woman's uh, body chemistry and hormonal balance to stop ovulation and produce birth control. Um, or you could use a natural method, uh, get some uh, fluid and pull it between your fingers and see if it stretches. And that's supposed to indicate whether or not you're ovulating. So highly natural, but maybe not reliable. But suppose the next generation of Apple Watch has a little green and red dot on it that, you know, the little dot that goes green or red for, depending on how you look at it, okay or not okay, or you're ovulating or not ovulating. So there's no intervention whatsoever. There's just a little scheduling thing. Um, so what if we can do more and more that way? So, you know, instead of driving to the movies and burning gasoline and uh, they broadcast the movie over the Internet and you watch it at your home, uh, your home, uh, your home flat screen. Now, that home flat screen is using a lot of energy. But what about at the next energy? next generation of organic LEDs. They're going to use a tenth as much energy and have ten times better color. We're getting there. So uh, anyway, uh, how do we feel about, uh, about whether we should even be born? So if you go to... Now, Quillette looks at these questions, and one of the things it does is a lot of attention's been kind of a lot, a lot of how should we put it? A lot of positions have been put forward without admitting what they are and where they're coming from. You know, I, uh, I, I that's one of my objections to the New York Times. Uh, I appreciate the depth of reporting, but it's telling me what to think, and it's doing it. You know, the reporter's actually so far gone, I don't even know what they're doing. But uh, I, I get this, you know, I'm reading a story and I'm saying, this story is not about what it's about. It's about a position that it wants me to hold and it doesn't want me to know that it's inducing me to hold that position. So 
Quillette's been calling people out on that. And as a result, uh, it's pretty controversial. So I look it up on Wikipedia. Quillette was launched in October 2015 in Sydney, Australia by Claire Lohman. The website drew significant public attention two years later. On 7 August 2017, after publishing the response of four scientists, and it names them, to James Damore's controversial memo, Google's Ideological Echo Chamber. The website now. So, okay, Google has a very, uh, shall we say, pro-diversity policy. And James Demore, an engineer at Google, wrote a memo, which he distributed to everybody, which uh, Google encouraged, in which he said, I think there's some bad assumptions here. He's been demonized for being sexist, and it's, uh, uh, I have to confess, I don't think so, but I haven't read it in detail. So uh, if you're going to be critical of James Denmore, uh, read the memo. But anyway, uh, a couple of scientists agreed with him or were critical of the put-down of him, and as a result, the site got down, got shut down by a denial-of-service attack. So uh, Quillette has been controversial ever since, and... Uh, um, email me what you think <laughs> once you look at it. So let's wrap up. This is John Lobel. You've been listening to Visionaries here every Monday. Tune in again next week. See you then.